Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Welcome to another episode of the Golders Podcast. Before we introduce today's guest, we'd just like to thank all of our listeners again for all of their support. If you're enjoying the podcast and you've liked what you've heard so far, we'd love to hear your feedback. So if you could review the podcast and rate them, it would be fantastic. And if you want to get hold of us again, we're available on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and on our website, at www.thegolddustcoach.com Now we're going to introduce today's guest. We have on Misha Gervis, a consultant sports psychologist who's worked in many professional environments and a senior lecturer at the renowned Brunel University. As you'll hear within this interview, Misha has a very practical approach towards psychology and a wide array of experiences within sports has impacted so many people with her work. Misha, welcome and, and thank you for being with us on the Golders podcast today. For those who are less familiar with who you are, could you please share a, a little bit about you and your sporting background? Well, first to say thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it, it's a privilege to be on this um, podcast, so thank you for the invite. Um, who am I? Gosh, big question. I guess I am a... Um, practicing sports psychologist and an academic. So I kind of combine two worlds and I have lived in the world of elite sport all of my professional life and lived in the world of elite sport before I even knew there was such a thing as a profession. So I guess that's where my, my roots are and the, the passion that I have for sport and the people who are in it is fundamentally what's driven me um, for most of my career, really. Are there any defining moments in your life that helped you toward the sports psych field? What, what, what was the reason that you went into that area? Okay, so um, we have to paint a picture where sports psychology is not known about here, here being the UK, obviously. And I was doing an undergrad degree in psychology, but I was also coaching um, gymnastics and I kind of wanted to put these two elements together and I actually did my my dissertation for my psychology degree I looked at the impact of imagery on a group of kids who were learning a cartwheel on the beam so I was doing a, a very simple sports psychology research dissertation looking to see if you if you develop the psychological skills of imagery, does it help performers become, do they learn it quicker? Do they become better? Anyway, happy days, did this, good experiment, handed it in, fantastic. No, I got absolutely slaughtered. And um, I got this comment across my dissertation that said, I don't know what you think this is, Misha, but this is not psychology. And uh, yeah, and that was, that was their understanding of sports psychology. So I, I, guess, I guess for me, I'm always ahead of, I feel like I'm always ahead of everyone and that I'm having to justify things because it hasn't been done yet. Well, that was, that was a classic moment of that. And I kind of went, yeah, all right then, not believing you. And then I went to America and, um, I did a postgrad degree in sports psychology. It didn't exist. You couldn't do a postgrad degree in, in sports psych in England at that time. So I had to go to America. And I guess that's what started me on, on that road. When I was in America, carried on coaching, worked with um, so like-minded people who were on my course from a, from a variety of different countries, from different sports, 
and that was a that, that was a great education and i kind of go yeah that this is important i can make something out of this came back to england and people laughed and basically said ah we don't do this you'll never work as a sports psychologist in this country what is it we don't need it and i just sit there and laugh at them now and go ah not sure you were quite right on that so that was a defining moment and and i guess that kind of um that approach is one that i've always had just because it hasn't been done so what i i'm going to do it anyway and i I've done that many times over in many different contexts, but in essence, it looks like the same thing. Well, we're gonna we're gonna explore a little bit more a little bit more around that uh, later in the in the chat. But you you later went on to do to complete your PhD at Brunel, mm -hmm. where you examined the issue of emotional abuse in children's sport. Mm. What was it about that subject that attracted you? to undertake that study well again the the work that i did on emotional abuse was the first bit of research into emotional abuse in sport specifically coaches emotionally abusing young elite athletes and i guess the reason i did it is because i'd seen it um i'd lived it i was an elite gymnastics coach trained up in lillishaw with national squad gymnasts I didn't like the behavior that I saw in coaches. I was labeled a maverick coach and people couldn't understand the relationship that I had with my gymnast. So for example, I would ask them, well, what do you think? Well, what's your, how did that feel to you? Um, and I remember having a gymnast who come from another gym and she was working with me and she did her routine and then she came to the end of it and she's sort of stood in front of me and I said well what do you think how did it feel what do you think happened and she didn't open her mouth and I'm kind of going well what's there's a problem here and she said do you really want my opinion and I'm like yes of course but she thought it was a trick question because she'd used to be just standing in front of the coach and the coach then just giving her the hairdryer and I wanted coaching to be a collaboration um, between myself and the kids I'm working with. And, you know, when you're coaching elite gymnastics, you're in the gym many, many, many hours. And so I was spending more time with these kids often than their parents. And I wanted, so the joy of it was about the creativity, about creating routines, about pushing boundaries and, and, and we did this all the time, actually, to be honest. And so I coached um, a couple of gymnast British champions, first ever black gymnast British champions. Um, we did really innovative work, innovative creativity. But, you know, when I was at the gym and I'm seeing how coaches are treating their athletes and I'm making a noise about it, um, and nothing happens to it it's a problem so i i i guess the impetus for that piece of research and the first the, the, the first paper that i wrote i co-wrote with an ex-gymnast of mine because she'd lived it with other coaches and and it's trying to understand okay is this normalized coaching behavior and the answer was yes and 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 why do coaches have to treat athletes in this way it's you know that that paper came out a long long time ago but the this kind of uh, i i speak a lot about the difference between a power over model of coaching and a power under model of coaching so the power under model is whereby the coach is helping the athlete get over the wall so to speak they're empowering them they're facilitating them they're using their energy to enrich enhance develop and the other one is about squashing power over reducing compliance and i often used to say that one of the most valued highly valued characteristics of athletes was compliance which to me is ridiculous you know and you know that kind of phrase oh they haven't got the right attitude 
Well, maybe that's because they're asking you questions that you don't want to answer. You know, what, 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 what's that about? So I, I have had many an interesting conversation about compliance and what that means within the sporting kind of context. But I guess that's, you know, that was my, that was my impetus to, to look at it. So the a personal association with experiences in observing and working with mm. young gymnasts. What age were the, the gymnasts? Six. Sure. Beginning, beginning, you know, they're not elite gymnasts at six, but certainly, you know, um, uh, 10 till 18, I guess, you know, is that kind of main um, age range. Yeah. Okay. So in recent months, there's been a quite a deluge of emotional mm -hmm. and physical abuse allegations made by Great Britain in gymnasts. Yeah. UK Sport and Sport England have since commissioned an independent review into these reports against British gymnasts. Mm -hmm. against what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if I if I relay this my exit strategy from British gymnastics, perhaps this will put it in context for you. Um, the last ever competition I coached at was a British Championship. And in the, you have a warm-up gym and then you have the main competitive gym. And in the warm-up gym, there was a coach who was yelling at an eight-year-old girl because she'd messed up her routine. I mean, then this girl was tiny. She might have been nine, 10, tiny. And I went to the coach and I said, you really need to not do that. You know, there's no need to yell at her like that. You're upsetting everybody around. Um, and her response to me was, you have no right to interfere with how I coach my gymnast. I'm going to report you to the organizers. She reported me to the organizers and they had a go at me for daring to challenge how another coach was treating her gymnast. That for me was game over. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm out. And so, you know, when all of this stuff has surfaced, um, and I've done, you know, I've done stuff on Sky News and the BBC and various radio programs and things talking about it. And the journalists are surprised. And I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I've known it for forever. I've known it for years. The first piece of research that I published on the subject was 2004. So that's 16 years ago. So um, I've subsequently published other, other bits of research on it. Um, and so there's, there's a wealth of knowledge that documents these behaviors, not just in gymnastics, by the way, but in other elite sports. And cultural shift is needed in terms of sport and, and how they create relationships with these young people. Now, Misha, you've been involved in coach education for many years. Yep. And you've also been very instrumental in developing undergrad and postgrad courses at Brunel University in London. I know you mainly teach on the postgrad program, focusing on applied aspects of, of sports, psych and athlete welfare. How's that experience been? And can you just delve into, into that for us? Sure. So, um, I guess a big part of who I am is an educator and it's always been important for me that I teach and share knowledge and, and change things. And I guess the, the kind of development of academic courses that have looked at coaching. So I wrote the first postgraduate course in coaching, which um, many people in football will, will recognize some of the people, most notably um, Chris Ramsey was, was one of my students on that course actually. And then the, the postgraduate course in, for practitioners, for people who want to become sports psychologists, um, that's mainly what I teach on now. But alongside that, within a kind of purely academic context, I've been doing a lot of coach education. Years ago, working with the National Coaching Foundation. And th this was an organization that realized that coaches needed more than just the kind of mechanics of the sport. They needed things to sit around it, like nutrition or S&C or psychology. And so I wrote um, a lot of the psychology ones, um, modules for them. 
And then um, myself, Dave Hulston and Richard Mullen were appointed by the FA to create psychology programs within the, the football um, coaching suite of programs, if you like, because there was nothing, there was no, no psychology at all. And so we wrote coaches from level one to level five, which Keith, you, you actually went on. And um, that, was the first, that was the first time the FA had tried to say, yes, psychology is important, we need to have it. And in particular, I worked on what was the old youth coaches program, which used to be a week long um, kind of course. And I delivered two, two days on that. Um, and then some of that information has now kind of morphed into what we now see as the level one, two and three um, youth coaching awards, because there was a recognition that actually kids are not adults and that you do need to have an understanding of, um, of children in terms of their cognitive development, their physical development, understand their emotional well-being, and therefore, and also that most football coaches are going to be working with young people. That is kind of the nature of the sport. So that that was an important part of the the coach education work that um, I did with the FA. I'm going to carry on with with that with the FA. So in 2002, the FA actually appointed you as a, a psychology consultant with specific remit to develop sports psychology through coach ed mm. um what did the whole role consist of and what benefits have been gained since you actually took that role um i guess you know there were a couple of things that came out of that and some of them are subtler than others primarily our first job was to look at the coaching um, you know, like the, the A license, the B license, the, the ones that sat below that and try and make psychology integrated into those um, awards. So initially they kind of sat alongside the normal coaching awards. And the idea was that the, the psychology had to be accessible. It had to be football specific. It had to be very applied in nature. And so, you know, we left all the psych jargon at home and we tried to make it so that we could connect with the people in the room and get people to really understand that actually paying attention to what happens between the ears is really, really important. Because if we look at the attention that's paid to the physical, the technical, the tactical, it's like the emotional, the psychological is a PS that we tack on at the end afterwards. But if you have an understanding of these things, if you have an awareness of these things, then actually you are going to be a much more effective coach. Um, so that was the kind of premise for that. Um, and there were five different levels of it. And as I said, I, I did this work with um, my colleagues, Dave Holston and, and Richard Mullen. And our job was to write the content, create the, the actual courses and deliver them. So I delivered as an FA tutor for many, many years. The other thing that we changed, which is subtler and maybe I think gets, and, and I was talking about it with Richard Mullen the other day, we developed a style of delivery that was very, very different from what existed before. So before the coaching style was you come in, someone would talk at you, and then that was learning. Whereas we, we developed a kind of integrated, interactive approach to learning where it was about conversation, sharing knowledge, applying experiences. And it was a really, really, it, our courses look radically different to everything else that was delivered on the FA. Well, if you look at it now, you will see that actually that model is pretty much adopted in how most of the content is delivered. But it, it came from what we did. I can personally vouch for that. I've been <laughs> attended every one of the site courses because what was very apparent is the room setting, a bit of music playing. It was very, very different. So the setting and the creation of that atmosphere where it felt more relaxed, mm -hmm. even though what was done previously we didn't have any year of the references but it was very very different mm -hmm. so when when we attended the the level five there Misha, i guess we were the guinea pigs is that correct 
Yep. <laughs> we, we, I have to put my hand up to that and say, yep, Keith, you, you definitely were. And I think it's astonishing to some degree that you were the, the guinea pig. So in my academic life, I taught like that all the time. That's how I taught. That's, that was my style. I never, and still is, I never stand up and lecture at people. I don't, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm interested in, if I say this, where does that take you? What do you do with that? And if you have an understanding of that, well, maybe someone else connects with it in a completely different way. But actually, if we find a way to share that, then actually we're so much richer. And coming away from that notion that I'm, you know, I've got all the answers. Of course I haven't, you know. But if I can challenge you, and if I can say to you, well, have a look at this, or here's a bit of information, maybe that changes your perspective on things, then I think I'm kind of doing my job. <laughs> Was there a moment when you decided to go down that route or was that always how you wanted to approach the way you delivered? The latter, really. Okay. Because, um, and, and that's true of, of, of all three of us. You know, we were very like-minded in terms of how we approached it. And, um, and I guess, and, it, and it's interesting because I've never really sort of acknowledged it because we were just doing it. We, we produced together some amazing work. We, we really did. And we worked really well together. And we challenged each other. And I think the quality of what we, what we created was, was really excellent. You're coming into a, a man's world. It's ah, yes, there middle is. Middle prominent. How was that experience? You've been in the room with mostly male. Mm -hmm. Certainly on our course or courses that we that we did year on year, there were there was no female in attendance yep. other than you. Yep, there I was. I guess it's you know it's part of it's part of what I'm always doing. It's like okay, I'm I'm just gonna do it. And uh certainly you know, one one occasion springs to mind when I think there was me and a nice cozy 80 people. Um, all of them men, and um, I was asked, no, I wasn't asked, I was told, someone stood up at the back of the room and said, who are you, what the hell are you going to teach me about football, you know, basically, you know, maligning the fact that I was a female, I'm, what, I'm not a footballer, so clearly I know nothing, clearly I have nothing to offer you, and you can imagine that that was quite a tricky moment, <coughs> excuse me, and I just, um, I thought, well, there's no point having a war with this person. There's no point getting into a, I'm going to defend my position. So I just simply said, well, we haven't started yet. So why don't you come back to me at the end of these two days and let me know your thoughts. Great. And to be fair to him, he actually did. And he said, yeah, I put my hands up. I, I got it wrong. I learned lots of things that I didn't know before. And um, yeah. Good on him. Maybe I shifted his worldview. Well, I've experienced the Misha world, so I know what that gentleman went through. Uh, now, you accompanied the women's senior national team to the World Cup in 2007 and yeah. the European Championships in 2009, yeah. where they were runners up in the final. You also you currently provided psychological support for a number of international athletes in a variety of different other sports as well. But prior to the, the World Cup, share some stories on the building blocks because we had a conversation last week in regards to how you help facilitate air learning, but a strategy that actually helped the team to get to the World Cup in China. So, what did you do? Um, what was it you did? Lots and lots of things, and it took a lot of time. So, credit to Hope Powell. You know, she was the first person that actually had a, a sports psychologist working with the team. The first national team that had a sports psychologist was the women's senior team, and luckily enough, that you know that was me. And then I was with them for seven years. Um, so over that time, we had a massive journey from. When I first started with them, the Euros were actually held in the UK 
and we were out in the group stages to you know 2009 when we got to the final so and, and that was an amazing growth in terms of women's football in terms of the significance of it and my role uh, well part of my role was to kind of create a narrative to create a story that we could connect to that we could add to so a couple of things i did so when we were going to china we had to qualify for china i got the art people in the fa to do a big scape of the big wall of china and every time we won a game it would go on the wall of china so it's like we were building our we were building the wall until until we got there did things like um creating the wall of inspiration and um we did this in china again once we qualified and it was really to to connect everybody together and everybody staff players everybody had to come and speak about what inspired them and what got them there um and these were really powerful individual stories of overcoming of struggle of inspiration of who helped them sometimes it was a bit of music sometimes it was a person and all of these then went on the wall of inspiration and we took it with us and it came with us to every game and and reminded us of 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 who inspired us and it was very it was very powerful um i did a lot of work with values particularly with the players um and if you ask any of those players one of the things that they really used to like that i did was um i'd get everybody to write something about why they valued this individual and then i'd cut them all up so i'd have a list here's everybody's names and i value this because you bring humor i value this because you're i can you can listen to me so they weren't allowed to put i value this because you got a great right foot so it had to be something that was who they were as a person and then the day before the big games or the tournament started every individual got an envelope basically appreciating them and being told how they were valued by everyone else in the team and staff as well and again it was we we don't often tell us tell each other these things but it became very powerful so when i first got there it was a team of disconnect um there were players who'd been on the team but hadn't spoken to each other you know it was it was very fragmented and i guess a lot of the work i was trying to do was to get people to connect and also to some degree that england on their shirts was a burden it wasn't a, a to be proud of and they thought as a team that they were less than less than a lot of the other teams and over time we absolutely changed that perception of who we were what we stood for and so that was a lot of the work that i did as a collective with everybody but then obviously i do lots of one to one support outside of that as well just to help people navigate through things what's the significant one... shift in that Misha? You, yeah you yeah you can Matthew. feel Definitely. You can feel a shift, can't you, when yeah. something like that's taking place? Was there, yeah. a, was it very evident? Was it something that came? I know you mentioned over a period of time, but well, it it didn't come. I worked at it. Yeah. That do you know what I mean? It's like you 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 these things don't happen unless you put effort and energy and attention into creating it. So creating different conversations, making people connect. allowing people to hear each other and so often times it would be me and the players doing a lot of this work i remember i remember this is another really powerful thing before the final of the of the euros i did a session on bravery and because i knew everybody's story and you have to understand how hard it was for many of those women to fight to be a professional player they weren't professional some of them were some of them weren't but they they all had to sacrifice they all had to fight and um i guess what i was trying to say is 
you have all gone through much harder things than playing a football match. Understand who you are as women, as people, as over, people who've overcome struggle and difficulties. Bring that with you. That's who you are. And that's who we are. We're an amazing collective of women. Yeah. And have pride in that. Have pride in that. Yeah. Did you work with the coaching staff separately or with the coaching staff integrated into some of these player meetings? It, it would vary. So sometimes, but also, you know, I tried to change some of the culture and how things were done in terms of giving the players more of a voice. So um, when it was doing video analysis, you know, from my point of view, it's important that the players did a lot of that and fed it back. So creating that conversation so that they were, because if they can't solve the problems for themselves, how do you expect them to do it on the pitch? Sure. If, if it's constantly being told something and it's very sense of it, you need to know that because there's a, there's a disconnect and you need to fix it somehow or make understanding better or whatever, whatever it is. So certainly in terms of cultural shift. So that was a body of work that you did. Were you living, breathing, you're experiencing the game, you're experiencing the highs and the lows in and out of hotels, living in, you're living in and out of suitcases really. But then we come back to the delivery of courses, which seems very much like as part of you, part of your life. Uh, yep. It's where you you cut your teeth now and got lots of respect in in the game. There's no doubt about that, and also in other sports. But you've also taught on the UEFA Pro License course. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit. Share with some information about about the course what are you gonna what are you gonna I share think, with people that are I, gonna be premier league yeah. managers or coaches I, I i didn't do that very often um but i think i was the first woman who actually presented on the ua on the pro license and i was just doing some stuff on goodness me what i can't even remember what it was actually it might have been about threat state understanding threat state challenge state and yeah, and I was just invited to deliver a, a bit on the kind of psychology that now is people are understanding that that's um, as important as the other bits. And, you know, the, the challenge for psychologists, I mean, we still have a challenge. It's ridiculous, but we still have a challenge. And it's the bit that is understood least well, but everybody thinks they know it. You know, it's just common sense, isn't it? Fortunately, it's not so common. And, and I think that there's a lack of an appreciation of, you know, <clears throat> I was saying this to someone. So to qualify as a sports psychologist, it takes you as long as it takes you to qualify as a medical doctor. Seven years. Undergrad degree, postgrad degree, supervised experience. So we are expert professionals. And slowly slowly we're coming into the room but we're not in the room enough so misha you're now the sports psychologist for wickham wanderers mm -hmm. and you have been for a number of years uh, i know firstly you spent time around their academy uh, when they had one and now you work with the first team can you explain what that experience has been like for you and also what makes working at wickham so special so I think I'm going to go backwards before I go forwards. So Richard Dobson and I, off the back of an FA course where I met him, and he said, oh, we should do something because Wickham Wanderers is round the corner from Brunel and we're in the same neighbourhood. So we set up a meeting. Within 10 days, we'd launched a psychology programme at Wickham. And that was the biggest sports site programme in Europe. And it was me and four other trainee sports psychologists. Every age group within the academy had a sports psychologist attached to them. This is, this is unheard of, literally unheard of. But through that work, we did stuff around coach behavior. 
We did lots of psychoeducation programs for the kids. We did one-on-one -on -one support for them, did a lot of parent workshops as well. And they were interesting because when we first started, there was about 20 people in the room. And by the end, everybody was in the room, over 100 parents in the room. And so I did that for many, you know, I don't know how many years I did it, maybe four, something like that. And that's that cemented my relationship with, with, um, with Dobbo really, because we worked together so well in that, in that environment. And he was so supportive of what we were trying to do. And it's credit to him that he was, he was brave enough to go, yeah, we're doing this. And I, and I do remember a, a meeting whereby one of the coaches was trying to question, shall we say, the sports psychology program and its validity. And he was very quick to say, listen, the sports psychology program is going to be here long after you are. So you have a choice. You either accept what we're doing or bye. Now, from my point of view, that is so powerful um, to actually have the person at the top, because he was the academy um, director at that time, say, no, this is what we're doing. This is the important thing. It changes everything because suddenly we're empowered. And I guess even when, so the academy closed, which is why I left, that's the only reason why I left. And then I moved to QPR and set up a similar program at QPR. Um, but in that time, we were always in contact with each other. And I would do individual work with players as and when. And I guess what's happened now is that <laughs> there's a little bit more money around in Wickham. And um, Richard Dobson said to me when they, when they were, um, when they got through from the playoffs, he said, we've been allowed to have a wish list and you're the top of mine, Misha. And uh, I was very, very touched by that. But the net result is, yeah, now I'm back working, working with the, with the first team as a, as a sports psych. Yeah. Doing, doing, working with everybody, doing some bigger work um, with the whole team and uh, Loving it. So you're working with the whole team. I'm going to ask you a question around efficient dressing rooms and what it looks and feels like and what ingredients they possess. Mm. Tell me what you mean by efficient. I would say working together as a group to okay. get the results that they need. Okay. So I've been in many dressing rooms and, um, the dressing room at Wickham is a very special place because it's a, it's, it's a place of connect. It's a place of support. It's a place of belief. And um, that's, what makes, that's what makes it work. So that creates that energy, you know. So the players who are subs will be in the middle of the dressing room connecting with everyone just as much as the person who's just come off the pitch there is a real yeah it's it's interesting um we did some work in a development day and that that's another thing that makes wickham special is they have development days and and one of the things we were doing was looking at values and and what were our values and the word the the, the value of family came up quite a lot of times and that's really how how they view themselves and family forgives e forgives each other you know family sometimes has a go at each other but the bottom line is family will remain strong regardless so you can count on them and they challenge each other they definitely challenge each other they definitely want set the expectations and those things those things are they're evident in the small stuff they're evident in the small conversations they're evident in how people help each other through difficult times you know how they how they have an understanding of each other and that for me so i'm not sure that the word efficient describes that <laughs> But in, in terms of is it a working, what makes it work, then it's that. And I have to be, be fair here and actually say 
that the England women's dressing room looked a lot like that and felt a lot like that as well. You know, there were definitely similarities in terms of how people were connected and how people believed and how that shifted and how that changed and how people had each other's back. It's interesting to, to listen to that, Isha. Obviously, that's coming from getting the support from up above. Absolutely. Through Dubbo and Gareth. Mm-hmm. And obviously the power of all of that is very, it's for all to see because of the, the relative success that they've had and the, the workmanlike manner that they go about doing what they do. But as a, an eminent sports psych, what is your greatest curiosity about your role? It's, it's very listening to your passions there and there's a real stoic character around you, but What's your greatest curiosity? So this is my motivation is I really care about people, actually. It's, it's quite simple. Um, and I want to support people. And so if I look at how I'm practicing now compared to how I was practicing 10 years ago, it's really different because I wanna keep growing, I wanna keep learning, I keep adding things into the mix and I keep having new challenges. And so I guess with Wickham, it's like, how can I help this person? Because this person is presenting with these issues. And, and then I go, okay, I need to go and have a better understanding of that. So I will go and do some work and bring it back. And, and I guess the thing about working with Dobbo is I'll go, I think we need to do some work on this. And he'll go, okay, go ahead, do it then. And so I, uh, you know, early on there were things happening and I thought, you know what, we need to just do something on this as a staff because I could, I could feel things getting a little bit, little bit tense maybe, understandably, you know, we'd lost four games or something and I'm going, we need to, Doe was like, yep, fine, go ahead. And everybody was in there and Gareth was in there. And, and so to be trusted, I guess, to do that work is, is so important for me. So important for me. Because then I, if you trust me, you're going to get the best out of me. <laughs> so that yeah. the, work they're, the work they're doing actually empowers you. That trust, which you've yeah. used on a, a couple of occasions, is so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I say, you know, the quality of my work is dependent upon the quality of the relationships I can create. And trust is a huge part of that. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm looking for. So when you're working with the players and as a consequence of that, the coaching staff, yep. what does success look like for you? You know what? It can, it can look like really tiny things that, that nobody's going to notice. <laughs> you know, it can look like a player coming off the pitch going, ah, oh, I tried that technique. It really helped me. I got, you know, it can look like that. It can look like somebody shifting their understanding or going, yeah, I get that. Maybe I can do it differently next time. Or how as a group of people we can connect better do you know what i mean so it's yes it's lovely to have that listen that first win make no mistake that was a powerful moment it was building coming and and was that success yes but i look at all of the successes that happened before it which probably got us to that place anyway they were small but they they add up to something is so success it's obviously all relative how do you measure it I don't think I do in my, in my life. I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I just kind of, you know, at the end of the day, I go through my day and I go, yeah, that was good. That was a nice bit of work. Yeah. I think I connected with this person. I think I made a difference there. And I guess that's, that is part of my job. How can I make a difference? You know, so maybe, maybe I, showed compassion to somebody who was going through something really difficult in their life and actually they were able to talk about it and offload it is that success absolutely huge success 
is it success when i don't know i've been working on techniques with a goalkeeper to help consistent kicking is that success yes that's success too it's quite varied do you know but if i if i walked away from a day at wickham and thought i hadn't impacted on anybody in any way then i would be asking myself questions and going hang on a minute that you need to do a bit better here or what should you be doing or maybe i need to try something else or that didn't work and and of course there are moments where i absolutely ask myself those questions and have to put my hand up and go yeah that yeah i needed to do something else there you so you constantly the feedback mechanism there's there's, there's a constant self regulation of the impact and influence does that come through a feeling uh, obviously you mentioned if, if somebody's kicking a ball or there's a technique where the goalkeeper is going to be striking it off the floor you can see it's very evident yeah but the area we're talking about here is sports psych can't see it and, and i think that this is our problem you know because <clears throat> but if you if you ask the players and you get the players to tell their stories of how how this moment help them made a difference added to taught them something showed them something i think they need to be my legacy as much as anything do you know what i mean i, I i'm not going to stand here and go yeah i did this this and this but i would say to you ask these players because their their experiences are the most important actually not mine theirs and the coaches that i work with so to create meaningful relationships with the players what do the coaches need to possess? I think self-awareness is, is a great place to start. <laughs> um, I think understanding how, um, how they impact um, the power of language that we are often very casual with. You know, so for example, a coach might make a throwaway comment to a player that they'll barely remember, but that player hangs on to it and actually ruminates on it and maybe makes it into something that it really wasn't. So um, that's what I mean by self-awareness. And um, sometimes, sometimes my role is to, is to be that barometer. You know, when you said da-da-da-da-da, maybe if you'd have rephrased it, it might look better or maybe or um when you said that it worked really well it was fantastic it created this so and and i think it's that thing of you know human first player second so coaching is is no different from what i do if you create good relationships with people you can be much more impactful much more impactful and um and i think sometimes what happens with coaches is that they often kind of isolate themselves a little bit or they go into power over structures because they think that that's the way to to run it um and they create so much distance between themselves and the people that they're working with that i think that that ends up being a problem because you can use the words we but that's very very different from actually living it and feeling it you know one thing i'd say about gareth is he's he's very open so whilst we talk about gareth and dobbo actually it's about all of his staff you know it's it's, it's everybody who feels that they have a voice no one no one feels like they can't speak they can't say what they're thinking or what their truth is and so there, of course there's a hierarchy in terms of titles but there's not a hierarchy in terms of being valued everybody's valued and i think a lot of coaches managers particularly don't do that very well so when people feel devalued they feel less than that's when the problems start in terms of performance well said <laughs> so if you were to ask another prominent sports psych one question, Misha, what question would that be? That's very, very tricky. I guess I'm always interested in people's stories. You know, how did, how did you get to that place? 
what was important for you, you know, because um, I'm wanting to learn from other people and ask questions of them. And I, and I do ask, and I do ask questions of people and, you know, and there are many people who are doing some really great work, really innovative, really different, really creative. And it's like, and, and sometimes I guess until you know the story, you don't know how you got there. So I'd say my favorite question is, tell me your story. Misha, this has been brilliant. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I know my dad from, from watching his reactions when you're answering the questions has been the same. And I have no doubt that those that are listening in will uh, resonate with what I've just said. And you've truly sprinkled some gold dust on, on the interview today. So from both of us, I want to thank you for your time. And um, we wish you all the best in what's going on. And I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll speak soon. David, let me just ask <coughs> Misha, uh, I concur. It's been, it's been outstanding. Uh, I didn't expect anything other than that, to be honest. But how can people reach out to you, Misha? How do they get hold of you? So um, I guess I'm on LinkedIn. Um, they can get hold of me through LinkedIn. And I put up posts of some of the work that I do and papers that I publish. Email me through um, Brunel University. I'm there. And those, those would be the easiest, easiest ways to, to touch base with me, I guess. But let me say thank you. And um, thank you for making me think um, and ask, ask questions of myself, which, um, of course, we rarely do because I'm just so busy doing it that you, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I forget I did that. And there was that. And, and thank you for wanting to hear my story. It's been a joy to speak with you both. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.